Hello, I'm Steph. And I'm Mel. And this is East Asia for All, a podcast about East Asian pop culture and media. If you're listening right now, you, like us, probably also have an addiction to East Asian films, cartoons, memes, music, and much, much more. Between the two of us, we've lived on and off in China, Taiwan, and Japan since 2007. We also both have PhDs in Chinese history, and we're both working as professors in the Midwest. I'm at St. Olaf College in the Departments of History and Asian Studies. And I teach history at St. Mary's University of Minnesota. So we're taking our love for East Asia, our experiences there, and the knowledge we've gained in the Ivory Tower and making it available beyond our classroom walls. Today's episode is about Chinese author Liu Cixin's popular fiction novel, The Three-Body Problem. We're also going to cover a little bit about the history of science fiction in China. And we also have a guest who is going to help us with the science in Liu Cixin's science fiction. So when you think about science fiction in East Asia, you might think about Japanese science fiction, which is pretty well known and popular in the United States. Yeah, we did our episode three on Ghost in the Shell franchise, for example, which has a futuristic cyberpunk aesthetic and also has a cult following in the U.S. among manga and anime fans. But Chinese science fiction is also making a name for itself, particularly through the writing of the software engineer turned author, Liu Cixin. And Liu is not just popular domestically either. His most well-known trilogy, Remembrance of Earth's Past, was translated into English in 2014. The trilogy is pretty commonly referred to by the title of the first book, however, The Three-Body Problem. And that's what we're going to discuss today, The Three-Body Problem. So spoilers, if you haven't read The Three-Body Problem and you want to, maybe hit pause and come back after you do. Still with us? So The Three-Body Problem has a pretty classic premise. First contact by extraterrestrials. But it has some really novel and unique takes on that storyline. So in Leo's novel, there's this civilization of intelligent beings who live in a solar system with three suns. This is where the title of the book comes from, and more about that later. Yes. Over the course of the novel, humans become aware of an alien civilization, including one of the main characters, Ye Wenjie, an astrophysicist. And after becoming aware of the aliens, they create a group to welcome them and facilitate their entry onto Earth. But different parts of the groups have different motivations for doing that. They also create a video game about how the alien civilization works to recruit people to their welcoming group. And it is through that video game that another main character, Wang Miao, becomes aware of the aliens and the humans who are planning for their arrival. What if that's what's happening while we're playing video games? I want the big reveal of the aliens. No, just playing Spyro. There are no alien dragons (laughs) out there. (laughs) But for us, the most interesting, and we're totally biased, right? Because we're historians, um, is the fact that the story begins during the Cultural Revolution. And if you aren't familiar with the Cultural Revolution, you should listen to episode five, which is about the film Balzac and the Little Chinese Seamstress. We give a pretty detailed explanation of the Cultural Revolution there. Long story short, the Cultural Revolution in one sentence was a political struggle from 1966 to 1976, both in the upper echelons of the Chinese Communist Party, but also at the grassroots level. And it plays a pretty substantial role in Leo's series. Yeah, in the English translation of The Three-Body Problem, it actually opens during the Cultural Revolution. Which actually isn't the case for the original Chinese version. Super interesting. Yes. 
So as we have discussed before, the Cultural Revolution is still a very sensitive topic in China. And the English translator for the three-body problem, Ken Liu. No relation to Liu Cixin, by the way. We will say Ken Liu when referring to the translator and just Liu when referring to the author. Yeah, just to confuse you more, right? But so Ken Liu said in an interview that Liu, the author, originally wanted to order the three-body problem in that way, opening with the Cultural Revolution. But there were concerns that it would be too politically sensitive. And it looks like the movie adaptation, which was announced in 2014, filmed in 2015, has also run into problems. Yeah, according to Sixth Tone, which is like this online news source about China, the movie is already completely shot, but has been stymied due to, quote, sky high expectations for visual effects and an unexpected company restructure, end quote. Of course, we could speculate as well that its delayed release might have something to do with the sensitive content. That's definitely not outside of the realm of possibility. But with another film coming out based on Leo's short story, The Wandering Earth, in February 2019, it's clear that Leo's work remains wildly popular among Chinese sci-fi fans. And surprise, there's a bit of a history to the popularity of sci-fi in China. Imagine that. Yeah. So science fiction in China dates back to the Republican era, 1912 to 1949. And one of the most notable works is Lao Xia's Cat Country. Cat Country was written in 1932, which, as Ian Johnson points out in an article from the New York Review of Books, was the same year that Aldous Huxley published Brave New World. Hmm. And in that book, Cat Country, an astronaut crash lands on Mars, which is ruled by cat people, also known as the planet that I want to live on, cat people. You might think so. (laughs) Yeah. Until you read his book and you find out that the cat people society is absurd and darkly dysfunctional, one in which food is poisonous and students butcher their teachers and relationships govern how well you will do and what kind of jobs you can get in life. Right. Not my fantasy of a cat planet, unfortunately. And the novel is widely characterized as a dystopian look at China in the early 20th century under nationalist control. Laosha saw the deterioration of the state and was pretty disillusioned by it all. In Cat Country, he satirized these attempts to envision and create a new society. And one quotation from Cat Country that really summarizes quite nicely these feelings of disillusionment um, is found close to the end. Laosha writes, quote, we ourselves never carefully examined either the new programs or our old problems. Consequently, we suffered all the pain associated with revolution, but derived none of its benefits, end quote. So over his life, he was critical of the nationalists and the CCP. And during the Cultural Revolution, he was criticized by Red Guards and committed suicide. Right. And according to the same article from Six Tone, after the Cultural Revolution ended in 1976 and reform and opening began in 1978, um, science fiction really flourished in magazines and books, which is pretty tragic considering, you know, Laosha's end. And the magazine Science Fiction World was founded during the same period in 1979. So this very brief golden age for science fiction ended in 1983 when an editorial in The People's Daily characterized science fiction as, quote, spiritual pollution. And so the writing and publishing of science fiction mostly came to a halt until the late 1990s. 
And fast forward to 2006, in that same magazine we were just talking about, Science Fiction World, this was the magazine that Liu Cixin would serialize the three-body problem in originally. The rest, as they say, is history. But wait, we have only been talking about the first book in this trilogy, right? The three-body problem. And we also haven't really explained the so-called three-body problem for which the book is named, or any of the science that is foundational to the series. Mostly because we're not scientists, and we can't. We really can't. But lucky for you, our listeners, we know someone who can help us understand the three-body problem and how the science is used in all three books. So Colin West is a theoretical physicist who teaches at UC Boulder, and he kindly agreed to help us understand the science behind the three-body problem. Thanks, Colin. Hello, everyone. For our episode on the three-body problem, I've brought in Colin West, teaching professor at the physics department of the University of Colorado, to help us understand some of the science in this science fiction novel. So, Colin, could you briefly explain your area of research and expertise? Sure. I work in uh, quantum physics, particularly something called quantum information theory. I work on the theories behind how we could apply quantum physics to to do cool things. Can we use individual atoms to make faster computers or design better communication systems, things like that? Oh, very cool. So one of the reasons that I brought you in, besides the fact that you are maybe my only friend who understands physics, (laughs) um, is that you have a project that's a little bit similar to East Asia for All and that you're trying to take high-level science knowledge and make it uh, comprehensible to a general audience, correct? Yeah. Uh, about uh, a year, two years ago now, my, my wife and I started a, a YouTube series that we call Think About This, um, where we, we uh, talk about ways that science and, and physics in particular often I- intersects with people's everyday lives and, and try to find moments that you can think about uh, uh, physics uh, as you go through your, your day-to-day stuff. Um, and we're, we're proud of the series. My wife does the, the artwork and the animations, and I stand there and talk about uh, science. I really like the episode where you explained why I always spill coffee on myself when I carry it around. <laughs> that was very useful. That's everyone's favorite episode. <laughs> we've been trying to top that one for, for a long time since then. So I should mention, we, we've sort of been on hiatus uh, recently uh, because we just moved here to Colorado for me to, to take this new job, but we're, we're planning on getting started up again soon. So we hope we'll have some new episodes out shortly. Great. So the first thing that I was hoping you could explain was the three-body problem. Could you explain that, what exactly that is, how the book treats it? Is it accurate? Yeah, um, the the three-body problem is a a famous mathematical slash physics problem, and it, it, it basically... It's it's a it comes from a surprising area of complexity in in physics. So, if you take Isaac Newton's laws of gravity, laws of motion, which we understand extremely well, and you imagine a universe that has only two things in it, two planets maybe orbiting around one another, um, no matter how big those planets are, how how they're moving initially, we we know mathematically how to use the laws of motion to figure out exactly where they're going to go um, after that, and for all time, we can predict as far out as you'd like how those two will, will interact with each other. If you add a third planet and nothing else to this universe, we lose all of our ability uh, to do that. We we, uh, we can make some predictions a little ways out, but we don't have any exact solutions. And the, the, the predictions we have about how they'll move are all very sensitive to, to how things started out. This is technically what, what's called chaos, that if you make a tiny change, make one move just 1% faster at the beginning than the outcome uh, of where they're at 
a few hours later will be just radically different because the little differences just sort of compound each other over and over. So it's sort of startling that, that we can know everything there is to know about the orbital motion of two bodies and, and almost nothing about the orbital motion of three bodies, or at least nothing exact. And so that's that's bothered scientists and mathematicians for a long time. How, how does adding just that little extra bit of complexity increase the, the, the complication of the problem so much? So the book uses this both as a, an actual subject. Uh, there, there is a star system uh, featured in here that involves three stars orbiting around one another. And the fact that nobody can predict just how those stars are going to move becomes a, a central part of the, the alien culture uh, of the civilization that, that lives there. Unlike our experience, where we know exactly what the sun is going to do every day, it's going to rise in the east and set in the west. They, they have no idea what their stars are going to do more than a few days out. It also uses this as sort of a, a metaphor, I think, for, for for um, how stable is our sense of certainty about our, our lives and, and, and the things we think they know. Maybe they're not as stable as we think. Maybe if you add just a little bit more complexity, things suddenly become too chaotic for us to predict. Now, in the book, it seems like, and this might actually be just a politically motivated perspective of one of the characters, but they state that they think that the three-body problem can never be solved. Is yeah. that something that also physicists think? Basically, yeah, generally no one's attempting to solve the, the three-body problem exactly anymore. We're just looking for better and better ways to to uh, approximate it as, as far as possible. I should say um, there's an interesting connection to, to uh, UC Santa Cruz that's even given a shout out in the books. I noticed that. Yeah, yes. Dr. Montgomery there is, is famous for being one of the few, few people in the world who's found a specific situation. If you arrange the three bodies just so and give them just the right initial velocities, in that situation you can predict exactly what the do for the rest of time and there are very few circumstances even like that so that's as close maybe as anyone's come oh very cool i like the santa cruz connection i did too another thing in the book that i was hoping you could help us understand was the cosmic microwave background yeah, this, this plays an important role in the book. The aliens make one of the scientist characters think that he's seeing tremendous fluctuations in the, in the background, and not just random fluctuations, but specific ones sending him a, him a message. And uh, uh, if you wanted to frighten a physicist there, not many things you could do that would be more terrifying than that. Yeah. So that's fairly accurate yes, in that yeah. sense. <laughs> um, because the cosmic microwave background radiation is radiation that is left over in the background from, uh, from the Big Bang. So it would be very surprising if it suddenly started changing. It's it's uh, an ancient relic from the early days of the universe. It shouldn't be it shouldn't be changing right now, and certainly not across the entire universe. You've actually probably seen uh, the the cosmic microwave background radiation manifest itself. Most people have actually. When you turn on your television set before you've got the the cable set up or the antenna turned on or something, you see that static, the white noise on the screen. Most of that is produced by the cosmic microwave background radiation interacting randomly with your antenna. Oh, um, very interesting. Yeah, it's it's. Uh, I, I always think it's it's really cool that that on a daily basis, if you wanted to, you can see some of the the leftover noise of the of the Big Bang, and seeing how random and chaotic that is, as you'd expect from a really hot random explosion like the Big Bang, you can see why a scientist would be really shocked if out of all that white noise suddenly some kind of message emerged. It would it would tell you that something really bizarre was going on. Right. What about the three K glasses? Could those be real? Uh, yeah, I wondered about this when I when I read them. In, in in theory, they could work. Whether you could actually build them into something that would be small and light enough to wear on your face, I'm not sure. I I, I thought about not it. Not anytime like, soon. Yeah, it, it certainly wouldn't be cheap. It seems it seems unlikely that they could be a, a museum gimmick uh, that you use let the public play with like they are in the book. But I don't know. Um, okay, TVs then. Yeah. <laughs> 
So you have read all three books, correct? Yeah. And I know that for the most part, you liked the use of science, but there was maybe some things that bothered you or one thing in particular. Yeah, I let me say first, I, I, I think that that um, the the treatment of the science in these, these books is fantastic. There are some places where they, they cheat a little bit, uh, but you have to do that to write a good science fiction book. And, and the question I always ask myself is, okay, if you're going to break the rules on me a little bit, are you at least doing it in the name of something worthwhile? And I think these books more than more than a lot of other science fiction I've read, really make sure that they get some Something good out of every time they 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 break the laws of physics a little bit. They do it so that they can make a really clever plot point happen, or so that they can ask a really interesting question. That said, uh, as someone whose area of expertise is is quantum physics and quantum theory, uh, the book very specifically says that that the uh, the alien civilization uses quantum entanglement as their method to communicate faster than the speed of light between uh, their home world and ours. And that's just something you, you just can't do. You just can't. There, there are a lot of other places where I'm willing to, to forgive. For example, the, the discovery that the scientist makes about um, how the sun behaves that they use to communicate. This isn't something that we think is actually true about the sun, but it, it kind of could be. Uh, nobody knows for sure. Maybe if we, maybe as we investigate the sun, we'll, we'll discover it, you know? And I thought that was a clever way to handle that, put in something that isn't what we believe is true, but, but isn't ruled out. Communicating faster than light with quantum entanglement, it's just, it's just not, I, I, can, I can show you in a few equations that it's absolutely <laughs> forbidden. It's just not, it's never going to turn out to be possible. So, um, oh, bummer. That said, even there, the plot lines that are enabled by the fact that they can communicate instantaneously almost make it worth it to me. Okay. So I think my last question is, when you were reading this book about a lot of physicists, well, what did you think as a physicist yourself? Oh, I, I loved it. It's another aspect of the book that uh, all three books that I that I really uh, enjoyed and appreciated. All the scientist characters feel ring ring true to me as as scientists that I've known and worked with, and how I I think myself, not uh, really as stereotypes or anything like that. There's a nice moment uh, where there's a scientist who's a specialist in nanotechnology, and he meets scientists who are, are specialists in uh, um, cosmology and other theoretical aspects of, of physics, and the way he interacts with them and expresses his own unfamiliarity with their areas and the way they trade expertise uh, was a lot, was was very familiar. It's, it's the way real scientists interact with uh, each other's expertise, and it's not like the way you often see in the movies. Someone whose job title is theoretical physicist always seems to get assigned to go along to meet the aliens on a first contact mission, and they always seem to be an expert in every area of science, and uh, for my own ego, I have to believe that that's not what a theoretical physicist is supposed to be like, because I, I certainly am not. It, it's full of beautiful moments like that, where I, I just think, yeah, that's, that's, um, those, these are like real scientists here. The, the moment when the, the main character discovers this property of the sun that she uses to send the messages was, was beautifully written to replicate the experience of what it would be like to, to be on the cusp of a, a momentous scientific discovery like that. Uh, it was, it was profound without being cliche. I, it was another moment that I, I just thought, wow, this guy, he gets, gets scientists. He really does. Oh, well, that's really great. Yeah. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. If you like East Asia for All, you could really help us out by telling others about the podcast and leaving a review on iTunes. We're lucky that we don't need funding or donations right now, but we could use your support in getting the word out. It helps other people find the podcast. For show notes and more information about the podcast, visit our website, eastasiaforall.com. You can also find us on Twitter at East Asia for All. Thanks. 